0: We would be honored if you would join us. Hey there Galaxy Hopping Star Wars enthusiast, Kyle here, beaming directly into your ears with the most thrilling out-of-this world audio experience ever, Star Wars Audio Archives. Hold on to your seats because we are launching into an all new absolutely mind blowing season and oh boy, are you in for a treat. We are leaping headfirst into the electrifying realm of the High Republic, kicking off with the first pulse pounding book, Light of the Jedi. But hey, this isn't just any old tale, this is actually one of the newest series in the Star Wars saga. Imagine this, an epic clash, not with the Sith, but an entirely different kind of darkness. One that threatens the very fabric of the Republic. So strap in space adventurers, we're about to hit hyperdrive into a thrilling first chapter of season 11 and together we'll journey through the all inspiring twists and turns of Light as the Jedi. Are your thrusters ready? Are your lightsabers charged? Great, now let's rocket into this adventure right now.
1: The galaxy is at peace, ruled by the glorious republic and protected by the noble and wise Jedi Knights. As a symbol of all that is good, the Republic is about to launch Starlight Beacon into the far reaches of the Outer Rim. This new space station will serve as a ray of hope for all to see. But, just as a magnificent renaissance spreads throughout the Republic, so does a frightening new adversary. Now the guardians of peace and justice ...must face a threat to themselves, the galaxy, and the Force itself. The Force is with the galaxy. It is the time of the High Republic. A peaceful union of like-minded worlds where all voices are heard... ...and governance is achieved through consensus, not coercion or fear. It is an era of ambition, of culture, of inclusion of great works. Visionary Chancellor Lena So leads the Republic from the elegant city world of Coruscant, located near the bright center of the Galactic Core. But beyond the Core, and its many peaceful colonies, there is the Rim. Inner, Mid, and finally at the border of what is known, the Outer Rim. These worlds are filled with opportunity for those brave enough to travel the few, well-mapped hyperspace lanes leading to them. Though, there is danger as well. The Outer Rim is a haven for anyone seeking to escape the laws of the Republic. And is filled with predators of every type. Chancellor So has pledged to bring the Outer Rim worlds into the embrace of the Republic ambitious outreach programs such as the Starlight Beacon, but until it is brought online, order and justice are maintained on the galactic frontier by Jedi Knights. Guardians of peace who have mastered incredible abilities stemming from a mysterious energy field known as the Force. The Jedi work closely with the Republic ...and have agreed to establish outposts in the Outer Rim to help any who might require aid. The Jedi of the Frontier can be the only resource for people with nowhere else to turn. Though the outposts operate independently and without direct assistance from the great Jedi Temple on Coruscant... ...they act as an effective deterrent to those who would do evil in the dark. Few can stand against the knights of the Jedi Order, but there are always those who will try.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Part one, a great disaster, hyperspace, the legacy run, three hours to impact. All is well. Captain Hedda Cassett reviewed the readouts and displays built into her command chair for the second time. She always went over them at least twice. She had more than four decades of flying behind her, and figured the double check was a large part of the reason she'd survived all that time. The second look confirmed everything she'd seen in the first. All is well, she said out loud this time, announcing it to her bridge crew. Time for my rounds. Lieutenant Bowen, you have the bridge. Acknowledged, Captain, her first officer replied, standing from his own seat in preparation to occupy hers until she returned from her evening constitutional. Not every long-haul freighter captain ran their ship like a military vessel. Hedda had seen starships with stained floors and leaking pipes and cracks in their cockpit viewports collapses that speared her to her very soul, but Hedda Cassett began her career as a fighter pilot with the Malastare-Sullest Joint Task Force, keeping order in their little sector on the border of the mid-rim. She'd started out flying an Incom Z-24, the single-seat fighter everyone just called a buzzbug. mostly security missions, hunting down pirates and the like. Eventually, though, she rose to command a heavy cruiser, one of the largest vessels in the fleet. A good career, doing good work. She left Malist JTF with distinction and moved on to a job captaining merchant vessels for the buying Guild. Her version of a relaxed retirement. But 30-plus years in the military meant order and discipline weren't just in her blood. They were her blood so every ship she flew now was run like it was about to fight a decisive battle against a hot armada even if it was just carrying a load of oak root hides from world a to world b this ship the legacy run was no exception hedda stood accepting and returning lieutenant jari bowman's snapped salute she stretched feeling the bones of her spine crackle and crunch too many years on patrol in tiny cockpits. Too many high G maneuvers. Sometimes in combat, sometimes just because it made her feel alive. The real problem, though, she thought, tucking a stray strand of gray hair behind one ear, is too many years. She left the bridge. Departing the precise machine of her command deck, and walking along a compact corridor into the larger, more chaotic world of the legacy run. The ship was a Caniff Yard's Class A modular freight transport, more than twice as old as Hedda herself. That put the craft a bit past her ideal operational life, but well within safe parameters if she was well maintained and regularly serviced, which she was. Her captain saw to that. The run was a mixed-use ship, rated for both cargo and passengers, hence modular in its designation. Most of the vessel's structure was taken up by a single gigantic compartment, shaped like a long triangular prism, with engineering aft, the bridge four, and the rest of the space allotted for cargo. Hollow boom arms protruded from the central spine at regular intervals to which additional smaller modules could be attached. The ship could hold up to 144 of these, each customizable, to handle every kind of cargo the galaxy had to offer. Hedda liked that the ship could haul just about anything. It meant you never knew what you were going to get, what weird challenges you might face from one job to the next. She had flown the ship once when half the cargo space in the primary compartment was reconfigured into a huge water tank to carry a gigantic saberfish from the storm seas on Tibrin to the private aquarium of a countess on Abragado Ray. Hedda and her crew had gotten the beast there safely. Not an easy gig. Even harder, though, was getting the creature back to Tibrin three cycles later when the blasted thing got sick because the Countess's people had no idea how to take care of it. She gave the woman credit, though. She paid full freight to send the saber fish home. A lot of people, nobles especially, would have just let it die. This particular trip, in comparison, was as simple as they came. The Legacy Run's cargo sections were about 80% filled with settlers, Heading to the outer rim from overpopulated core and colony worlds, seeking new lives, new opportunities, new skies. She could relate to that. Hedda Cassett had been restless all her life. She had a feeling she'd die that way, too, looking out of viewport, hoping her eyes would land on something she'd never seen before because this was a transport run, most of the ship's modules were basic passenger configurations, with open seating that converted into beds that were, in theory, comfortable enough to sleep in. Sanitary facilities, storage, a few hollow screens, small galleys, and that was it. For settlers willing to pay for the increased comfort and convenience, some had droid-operated auto canteens and private sleeping compartments but not many. These people were frugal. If they'd had credits to begin with, they probably wouldn't be heading to the Outer Rim to scrape out a future. The dark edge of the galaxy was a place of challenges both exciting and deadly. More deadly than exciting, in truth. Even the road to get out here is tricky, Hedda thought her gaze drawn by the swirl of hyperspace outside the large porthole she happened to be passing. She snapped her eyes away, knowing she could end up standing there for twenty minutes if she let herself get sucked in. You couldn't trust hyperspace. It was useful, sure. It got you from here to there. It was the key to the expansion of the Republic out from the core. But no one really understood it. If your Navidroid miscalculated the coordinates even a little, you could end up off the marked route. The main road through whatever hyperspace actually was, and then you'd be on a dark path, leading to who knew where. It happened even in the well-traveled hyperlanes near the galactic center. And out here, where the prospectors had barely mapped out any routes? Well, you had to watch yourself. She put her concerns out of her mind, and continued on her way. The truth was, the Legacy Run was currently speeding along the best-traveled, best-known route to the Outer Rim Worlds. Ships move through this hyperlane constantly, in both directions. Nothing to worry about. But then, more than 9,000 souls aboard this ship were depending on Captain Hedda Cassett to get them safely to their destination. She worried. It was her job. Hedda exited the corridor and entered the central hull, emerging in a large circular space, an open spot necessitated by the ship's structure that had been repurposed as a sort of unofficial common area. A group of children kicked a ball around as adults stood and chatted nearby, all just enjoying a little break from the cramped confines of the modules where they spent most of their time. The space wasn't fancy, just a bare junction spot where several short corridors met. But it was clean. The ship employed, at its captain's insistence, an automated maintenance crew that kept its interiors neat and sanitary. One of the custodial droids was spidering its way along a wall at that very moment, performing one of the endless tasks required on a ship the size of the run. She took a moment to take stock of this group. Twenty people or so, all ages, from a number of worlds. Humans, of course, but also a few four-armed, fur-covered Ardenians, a family of given with their distinctive triangular eyes, and even a latic, with its pinched face, topknot, and huge pointed ears protruding from the side of its head. You didn't see many of those around. But no matter their planet of origin, they were all just ordinary beings, biding time until their new lives could begin. One of the kids looked up. Captain Cassett, the voice said. A human, olive skinned with red hair. She knew him. Hello, Serge, Hedda said. What's the good word? Everything all right here? The other children stopped their game and clustered around her. Could use some new hollows, Serge said. We've watched everything in the system. All we got is all we got, Heather replied. And stop trying to slice into the archive to see the age-restricted titles. You think I don't know? This is my ship. I know everything that happens on the Legacy Run. She leaned forward. Everything Serge blushed and looked toward his friends, who had also suddenly found very interesting things to look at on the absolutely uninteresting floor, ceiling, and walls of the chamber. Don't worry about it, she said straightening. I get it. This is a pretty boring ride. You won't believe me, but in not too long, when your parents have you plowing fields or building fences or fighting off rancors... You'll be dreaming of the time you spent on this ship. Just relax and enjoy. Serge rolled his eyes and returned to whatever improvised ball game he and the other kids had devised. Hedda grinned and moved through the room, nodding and chatting as she went. People. Probably some good, some bad. But for the next few days, her people. She loved these runs. No matter what eventually happened in the lives of these folks, they were heading to the Rim to make their dreams come true. She was part of that, and it made her feel good. Chancellor soul's Republic wasn't perfect. No government was, or ever could be. But it was a system that gave people room to dream. No, even better, it encouraged dreams, big and small. The Republic had its flaws, but really, things could be a hell of a lot worse. Hedda's rounds took over an hour. She made her way through the passenger compartments, but also checked on a shipment of supercooled liquid tabana to make sure the volatile stuff was properly locked down. It was. Inspected the engines. All good. Investigated the status of repairs to the ship's environmental recirculation systems. ...in progress and proceeding nicely... ...and made sure fuel reserves were still more than adequate for the rest of the journey... ...with a comfortable margin besides. They were. The Legacy Run was exactly as she wanted it to be. A tiny, well-maintained world in the wilderness. A warm bubble of safety holding back the void. She couldn't vouch for what was waiting for these settlers once they dispersed into the Outer Rim but she would make sure they got there safe and sound to find out. Hedda returned to the bridge, where Lieutenant Bowman all but leapt to his feet the moment he saw her enter. Captain on the bridge, he said, and the other officer sat up straighter. Thank you, Jari, Hedda said as her second stepped aside and returned to his post. Hedda settled into her command chair, automatically checking the displays, scanning for anything out of the ordinary. All is well, she thought. An alarm, loud and insistent. The bridge lighting flipped into its emergency configuration, bathing everything in red. Through the front viewport, the swirls of hyperspace looked off somehow. Maybe it was the emergency lighting, but they had a reddish tinge. They looked sickly. Hedda felt her pulse quicken. Her mind snapped into combat mode without thinking. Report! she barked out, her eyes whipping along her own set of screens to find the source of the alarm. Alarm generated by the navi Captain! called out her navigator, Cadet Kalwar, a young Querbian. There's something in the hyperlane. Dead ahead! Big! Impact in ten seconds! The cadet's voice held steady, and Hedda was proud of him. He probably wasn't that much older than Surge. She knew this situation was impossible. The hyperlanes were empty. That was the whole point. She couldn't rattle off all the science involved, but she did know that light speed collisions in established lanes simply could not happen. It was mathematically absurd to hear the engineers talk about it. Hannah had been flying in deep space long enough to know that impossible things happened all the time, every damn day. She also knew that ten seconds was no time at all at speeds like the Legacy Run was traveling. You can't trust hyperspace, she thought. cast a tapped two buttons on her command console. Brace yourselves, she said, her voice calm. I'm taking control. Two piloting sticks snapped up out from the armrests of her captain's chair, and had to grasp them, one in each hand. She spared the time for one breath, and then she flew. The Legacy Run was not an Incom Z-24 Buzzbug, or even one of the New Republic longbeams. It had been in service for well over a century. It was a freighter at the end of, if not beyond, its operational lifespan loaded to capacity with engines designed for slow gradual acceleration and deceleration and docking with spaceports and orbital loading facilities it maneuvered like a moon the legacy run was no warship not even close but had a fluid like one she saw the obstacle in their path with her fighter pilot's eye and instincts Saw it advancing at incredible velocity, large enough that both her ship and whatever the thing was would be disintegrated into atoms, just dust drifting forever through the hyperlanes. There was no time to avoid it. The ship could not make the turn. There was no room, and there was no time. But Captain Hedda Cassett was at the helm, and she would not fail her ship the tiniest tweak of the left control stick, and a larger rotation of the right, and the legacy run moved. More than it wanted to, but not less than its captain believed it could. The huge freighter slipped past the obstacle in their path, the thing shooting by their hull so close and it was sure she felt it ruffle her hair, despite the many layers of metal and shielding between them. But they were alive impact. The ship was alive. Turbulence and Hedda fought it, feeling her way through the jagged bumps and ripples, closing her eyes, not waiting to see to fly. The ship groaned, its frame complaining. You can do it, old gal, she said out loud. We're a couple of cranky old ladies, and that's for sure, but we've You both got a lot of life to live! I've taken damn good care of you, and you know it! I won't let you down if you won't let me down! Hedda did not fail her ship. It failed her. The groan of overstressed metal became a scream! The vibrations of the ship's passage through space took on a new timbre Hedda had felt too many times before. It was the feeling of a ship that had moved beyond its limits. Whether from taking too much damage in a firefight, or, as here, just being asked to perform a maneuver that was more than it could give. The Legacy Run was tearing itself apart. At most, it had seconds left. Hedda opened her eyes. She released the control sticks and tapped out commands on her console, activating the bulkhead shielding that separated each cargo module in the instance of a disaster, thinking that perhaps it might give some of the people aboard a chance. She thought about Serge and his friends playing in the common area. And how emergency doors had just slammed down at the entrance to each passenger module, possibly trapping them in a zone that was about to become vacuum. She hoped the children had gone to their families when the alarm sounded. She didn't know. She just didn't know. Had a locked eyes with her first officer, who was staring at her, knowing what was about to happen. He saluted. Captain! Lieutenant Bowman said. It's been an The Bridge ripped open. Hannacassid died. Not knowing if she could save anyone at all. The outer rim. Hetzal system. 2.5 hours to impact. Scantech third-class Mervyn Getter was ready. Ready to clock out for the day. Ready to get the shuttle back to the inner system. Ready to hit the cantina a few streets away from the spaceport on the rooted moon where Cella worked tending bar. Ready to see if today was the day he might find the courage to ask her out. She was Twilight. And he was Allen. But what difference did that make? We are all the Republic! Chancellor So's big slogan. But people believed it. Actually, Mervyn thought he did too. Attitudes were evolving. The possibilities were endless. And maybe one of those possibilities revolved around a Scantech third class staffed on a monitoring station far out on the ecliptic of the Hetzal system Itself pretty blasted far out on the rim, sadly distant from the bright lights and interesting worlds of the Republic core. Perhaps that Scantech third class, who spent his days staring at hollow screens, logging starship traffic in and out of the system, could actually catch the eye of the lovely scarlet skinned woman who served him up a mug of the local ale three or four nights a week. Sella usually stayed around to chat with him for a while, circling back as other customers drifted in and out of her little tavern. She seemed to find his stories about life on the far edge of the system inexplicably interesting. Mervyn didn't get why she was so fascinated. Sometimes ships showed up in system, popping in from hyperspace and appearing on his screens, and other times ships left, at which point their little icons disappeared from his screens. Nothing interesting ever happened. Flight plans were logged ahead of time, so he usually knew what was coming or going. Mervin was responsible for making sure those flight plans were followed and not much else on the off chance something unusual occurred. His job was just to notify people significantly more important than he was. Scantech third-class Mervin Getter spent his days watching people go places. He, in contrast, stayed still, but maybe not today. He thought about sella he thought about her smile, The way she decorated her leku with those intricate lacings she told him she designed herself. The way she stopped whatever she was doing to pour him his mug of ale the moment he walked in, without him even having to ask for it. Yeah, he was going to ask her to dinner tonight. He'd been saving up, and he knew a place not too far from the cantina. Not so far from his place, either. <laughs> but that was getting ahead of himself. He just had to get through his blasted shift. Mervyn glanced over at his colleague, ScanTech Second Class Karam. He wanted to ask her if he could check out a little early that day? Take the shuttle back to the rooted moon? She was reading something on a datapad, her eyes wrapped. Probably one of the Jedi romances she was always obsessed with. Mervyn didn't get it. He read a few. They were all set at outposts on the far Republic frontiers, full of unrequited love and longing glances. The only action was the lightsaber battles that were clearly a substitute for what the characters really wanted to do. Vel wasn't supposed to be reading personal material on company time, but if he called her out on it, She'd just tap the screen and switch it to a technical manual and insist she wasn't doing anything wrong. The trouble was, she was second class, and he was third class. Which meant that as long as he did his job, she thought she didn't have to do hers. Nah, not even worth asking for an early sign-off time. Not from Vel. He could get through the rest of his shift. Not long now. And... Something appeared on one of his screens. Huh, Mervyn said. That was odd. Nothing was scheduled to enter the system for another 20 minutes or so. Something else appeared. A number of somethings. Ten. What the... Mervyn said. Problem getter? Vel asked, not glancing up from her screen. Uh, I'm not sure, he said got a bunch of unscheduled entries to the system, and they're not decelerating. Wait, what? Belle said, setting down her data screen and finally looking at her own monitors. Oh, that is odd. More icons popped up on Mervyn's screens. Too many to count at a glance. Is this... Uh, do you think it's... of... Um, asteroids, maybe? Belle said. Her voice unsteady. At that velocity? From hyperspace? I don't know. Run an analysis, Mervyn said. See if you can figure out what they are. Silence from Bell station. Mervyn glanced up. I don't know how, she said. After the latest upgrade, I never bothered to learn the systems. You seem to have it all under control. And I'm really here to supervise, you know, and oh, fine, he said, utterly unsurprised. Can you track trajectories at least? That subroutine's been the same for like two years. Yeah, Bell said. I can do that. Mervyn turned back to his screens and started typing commands across his keypads. There were now forty-two anomalies in system all moving at a velocity near light speed. Incredibly fast, in other words. Much quicker than safety regulations allowed. If they were, in fact, ships, whoever was piloting them was in for a massive fine. But Mervyn didn't think they were ships. They were too small, for one thing, and didn't have drive signatures. Asteroids, maybe? A space rock somehow thrown into the system? Some kind of weird space storm, or a comet swarm? It couldn't be an attack, that much he knew. The Republic was at peace, and looked like it was going to stay that way. Everyone was happy, living their lives. The Republic worked. Besides, the Hetzal system didn't have anything worth attacking. It was just an ordinary set of planets. The Prime World and its two inhabited moons the fruited and the rooted, with a deep focus on agricultural production. It had some gas giants and frozen balls of rock, but really it was just a lot of farmers and all the things they grew. Mervyn knew it was important that Hetzal exported food all over the Outer Rim, and some of its output even found its way to the inner systems. There was that Bacta stuff he'd been reading about, too. Some kind of... Miracle replacement for Juvan, they were trying to grow on the Prime World. Supposed to revolutionize medicine if they could ever figure out how to farm it in volume. But still, it was all just plants. It was hard to get excited about plants. As far as he was concerned, Hetzal's biggest claim to fame was that it was the homeworld of a famous gill singer named Alloria Days. Could vibrate her vocal apparatus in such a way as to sing melodies in six part harmony. <laughs> that, in combination with a uniquely appealing wit and rags to riches backstory, had made her famous across the Republic. But Eloria wasn't even here. She lived on Alderaan now, with the fancy people. That's all, had nothing of any real value. None of this made sense. Another rash of objects appeared on his screens. So many now that it was overloading his computer's ability to track them. He zoomed out the resolution, shifting to a system-wide view, making a clearer picture. Mervyn could see that the things, whatever they might be, were not restricting themselves to entering the system from the safety of the hyperspace access zone. They were popping up everywhere and the sun were getting awfully close to... Oh no, Bell said. I see it too, Mervyn said. He didn't even have to run a trajectory analysis. The anomalies were headed sunward, and many of them were on intercept courses with the inhabited worlds and their orbital stations. The things weren't slowing down either. Not at all. At near light speed... It didn't matter whether they were asteroids or ships or frothy bubbles of fizz candy. Whatever they hit would just... go. As he watched, one of the objects smashed through an unscrewed communication satellite. Both the anomaly and the satellite vanished from his screen, and the galaxy got itself a little more space dust. Hetzal Prime was big enough that it could endure a few impacts like that and survive as a planetary body. Even the two inhabited moons might be able to take a couple of hits. But anything living on them... Scylla was on the rooted moon right now. We have to get out of here, he said. We're right in the target zone, and more of these things are appearing every second. We have to get to the shuttle. I agree. Vell said, some semblance of command returning to her voice. But we need to send a system-wide alert first. We have to. Mervyn closed his eyes for a moment, then opened them again. You're right, of course. The computer needs authorization codes from both of us to activate the system-wide alarm, Bell said. We'll do it on my signal. She tapped a few commands on her keypad. Mervyn did the same. And waited for her nod. She gave it, and he typed in his code. A soft, chiming alarm rang through the operations deck as the message went out. Mervin knew that a similar sound was now being heard across the Hetzal system, from the cockpits of garbage scows all the way to the Minister's Palace on the Prime World. Forty billion people just looked up in fear. One of them was a lovely scarlet skinned twilight. Probably wondering whether her favorite Mary Allen was going to come by the tavern that evening. Mervyn stood up. We've done our job. Show time. We can send a message explaining what's happening on the way. Belle nodded and levered herself up out of her seat. Yeah. Let's get out of one of the objects leapt out of hyperspace so near and moving so fast. ...that in astronomical terms, it was on them the moment it appeared. A gout of flame! The anomaly vanished, along with the monitoring station, its two scan techs... ...and all their goals, fears, skills, hopes, and dreams. The kinetic energy of the object atomizing everything it touched... ...in less than an instant. Aguirre City, Hetzal Prime. Two hours to impact. Is this real? Minister Eka asked as the chimes rang through his office. Consistent, insistent, impossible to ignore. Which he supposed was the point. Seems so, Counselor Don answered, tucking a curl of hair behind his ear. The alert originated from a monitoring station at the far edge of the system. It came in at the highest priority level and hit system-wide. Every computer linked to the main processing core is sounding the same alarm. But what's causing it? The minister asked. There was no message attached? No, Don replied. We've repeatedly asked for clarification, but there's been no response. We believe... The monitoring station was destroyed. Minister Eka thought for a moment. He rotated his chair away from his advisors, the old wood creaking a little beneath his weight. He looked out through the broad picture window that made up the wall behind his desk. As far as he could see, the golden fields of Hetzal, all the way to the horizon. The world, the whole system really, believed in using every bit of available space to grow, create, to cultivate. Buildings were roofed with cropland, rivers and lakes were used to grow helpful algae and water weeds. Towers were terraced with fruit vines spilling from their sides. Harvester droids floated among them, plucking ripe fruits, whatever was in season. Right now that would be honey fruit, kingberries, and ice melons. In a month, it would be something else. On Hetzal, something was always in season. He loved this view. The most peaceful in the galaxy, he believed. Everything just so. Productive and correct. Now, with the alarm chimes ringing in his ears, it didn't look like that anymore. Now, it all just looked... fragile. Something's happening out there, another advisor said. A Deveronian woman named Zafa. Eka had known her for a long time, and this was the first time he'd ever heard her sound worried. She was staring down at a data screen, frowning. A mining rig out in mid system just went down, Zafa said. The satellite network's starting to show holes too. It's like something's taking out our facilities, one by one." -"And we still don't have any images? This is madness!" Eka declared. He pointed at his security chief, a portly middle-aged human. -"Borda! Why don't your people know what's happening?" Borda frowned. -"Minister, respectfully you know why." Your recent cuts have reduced Hetzal's security division to a tenth of its former size. We're working on it, but we can't bring much to bear. Is it some sort of natural anomaly? It can't be. We're not under attack, are we? At this point, we don't know. What's happening is consistent with some sort of enemy infiltration, but we're not seeing drive signatures locations being hit are pretty random. We do still have some orbital defense platforms out there, and they're all intact. If it's an attack, they should be targeting our ability to strike back. But they're not. The chimes sounded again, and Eka spun in his chair and pointed at Counselor Don, who cringed back. Will you turn off that blasted alarm? I can't think! Don pulled himself up, Standing a little straighter and tapped a control on his data screen. The times, blessedly, ceased. Another advisor spoke up. A slim young man with red hair and extremely pale skin, Kevin Tar. The Ministry of Technology had sent him over. Eka didn't have much use for tech that wasn't related to agricultural yields. In his heart, he was still a farmer. But he knew Tar was supposed to be very smart. Probably wouldn't be long until the boy moved on. Found himself a job in some more sophisticated part of the galaxy. It was the way of things on a world like Hetzal. Not everyone stayed. I think I can show you what's going on, Minister. Tar said. The man had long fingers for a human, and they danced over his data pad. Let me give the data to the droid. It can project the information so we can all see. He tapped a few last commands then unreeled a connection wire from his data pad and plugged it into the access port on the squat, hexagonal palms droid waiting in the corner of the room. It rolled forward, its single green eye lighting up as it moved. From that eye, the machine projected an image on the large white wall in the minister's office, reserved for the purpose. Normally, presentations on the vid wall would be concerned with crop yields or pest eradication programs. Now, though, it displayed the entire Hetzal system. All its worlds and stations and satellites and platforms and vessels. And something else. To Minister Eka, it looked like a field overrun with a swarm of all-consuming insects. Hundreds of tiny lights moved through his system at what had to be tremendous speed. All in the same direction. Sunward. More particularly, planetward, toward Hetzal Prime and the moons, fruited and rooted, not so far away. Not to mention all those stations, satellites, platforms, vessels, many of which had people on them. What are they? he asked. Unknown, Tar responded. I I got this image by linking together signals from the surviving satellites and monitoring stations... But they're going down quickly, and we're losing sensor capacity as they do. Whatever these anomalies are, they're moving at near light speed, and it's very difficult to track them. And, of course, whenever they hit something, it's... Not good. General Borda finished for him. Apocalyptic, I was going to say, Tar said. I'm tracking a good number on impact paths with the Prime World. Is there nothing to be done? Eka said, looking at Borda. Can we shoot them down? Borda gave him a helpless look. Once, maybe we'd have had a chance. At least some. But system defense hasn't been a priority here for a long time. The accusation hung in the air. But Eka did not indulge it. He had made decisions that seemed correct at the time, with the best information he had. They were at peace. Everywhere was at peace. Why waste money that could help people in other ways? In any case, no looking back. It was time for another decision. The best he could make. He did not hesitate. When the crops were burning, you couldn't hesitate. As bad as things might be, The longer you waited, the worse they tended to get. Give the evacuation order, system-wide. Then send a message to Coruscant. Let them know what's happening. They won't be able to get anyone here in time, but at least they'll know. Counselor Zaffa looked at him, her eyes hooded. I don't know if we can actually implement that order effectively, Minister, she said. We don't have enough ships here for planetary evacuations. And if these things are really moving close to light speed, there isn't much time until... I understand, Counselor Zafa," Eka said. His voice steady now. But even if the Order saves just one person, then one person will be saved. Zafa nodded and tapped her data screen. It's done, she said. System-wide evac in progress. The group watched the projection on the wall. Fritzes of static lancing through it now. TAR's makeshift network was losing capacity as more satellites met fiery ends. But the message was still clear. It was like a massive gun had been fired at the Hetzal system. And there was nothing they could do to save themselves. You should Probably all try to find yourselves a way off-world, Eka said. I imagine the starships we do have will be very full, quite quickly. No one moved. What will you do, Minister? Counselor Don asked. Eka turned back to his window, looking out at the fields, golden to the horizon. It was all so peaceful. Impossible to believe anything bad could ever happen here. I think I'll stay, he said. Broadcast to the people, maybe. Try to keep folks calm. Someone has to look after the harvest. Across Hetzal Prime and the broad expanses of its two inhabited moons, the message of Minister Eka traveled rapidly, appearing on data pads and hollow screens, broadcast across all communication channels, saying in essence, nowhere is safe. Get as far away as you can. Explanation was limited, which caused speculation. What was happening? Some kind of accident? What disaster could be so huge in scope that an entire system needed to be evacuated? Some people ignored the warning. False alarms had happened before, and sometimes slicers pulled pranks or showed off by breaking into emergency alert computer systems. True, nothing had ever happened on this scale, but really, that made it easier to dismiss the whole thing. After all, the entire system in danger? It just wasn't possible. Those people stayed in their homes, at their workplaces. They turned off their screens and got back to their lives. Because it was better than the alternative. And if they glanced to the skies from time to time and saw starships heading up and out... Well, they told themselves the people in those ships were fools. Easily spooked. Others elsewhere froze. They wanted to find safety, but had no idea how. Not everyone had access to a way off-world. In fact, most did not. Hetzal was a system of farmers. People who lived close to the land. If they traveled anywhere else in the Republic, it was for a special occasion. A -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Now being told to find a way to space on a moment's notice? How? How could they possibly do such a thing? But some people in Hetzal did have starships or lived in the cities where space travel was more common. They found their children, gathered their treasures, and raced to the spaceports, hoping they would be the first to arrive, the first to book passage. They inevitably were not. They were greeted by crowds, queues, ticket prices spiking to unattainable levels for all but the wealthiest, thanks to unscrupulous opportunists. Tension rose, fights broke out, And while Hetzal did have a security force to calm these squabbles, these officers also eyed the skies and wondered if they would spend their last moments alive trying to help other people to safety. A noble end, if so, but a desirable one. The security officers were people, too, with families of their own. Order began to break down. On the rooted moon... A kind trader decided to open the doors of the starship he used to transport the exceedingly fresh produce of the moon to the voracious worlds of the Outer Rim. He offered space to all who could possibly fit, and though his pilot told him the vessel was old, the engines were a bit past their prime, the trader did not care. This was a moment for magnanimity and hope, and by the light he would save as many as he could. The ship holding 582 people, including the trader and his own family, managed to take off from its landing pad once the pilot pushed its engines to maximum. It just needed to escape the moon's gravity well. Once they were in space, everything would get easier. They could get away, to safety. The vessel achieved most of a kilometer before the overtaxed engines exploded. The fireball rained down over those left behind, and they were not sure whether they were lucky or not, considering they still had no idea what was coming for them. Minister Eka's message did not say. A variant on that message was sent out from Hetzal to any other systems or ships that might hear it. We are in desperate trouble. Send aid if you can. It was picked up by receivers in the other worlds of the Outer Rim. Abdalis, Moncala, Iriadu, and many more. Spreading outward via the Republic's relay system, and then inward to the planets of the Mid and Inner Rims, the Colonies region, and even the Shining Core. Virtually everyone who heard it wanted to do something to help. But what? It was clear that whatever was happening in Hetzal would be over well before they could arrive. But ships were sent anyway. Mostly medical aid vessels, in the hope they might be able to offer treatment to injured citizens of Hetzel. If any survived. Get to your nearest off-world transport facility. Minister Eka said to a cam droid, recording his words and image and broadcasting them across the system. We will send ships to pick up people who don't have other ways to leave the planet. It might take time, but stay calm and peaceful. You have my word. We will come for you. We are all of the same crop. hardy stock. We will survive this the way we have survived harsh winters and dry summers. By pulling together. We are all Hetzal. We are all... The Republic, he said. He raised a hand, and the cam droid ceased transmitting. This was the fourth message he had sent since the emergency began, and he hoped his communications were doing some good. Reports suggested they were not. Riots were beginning at spaceports on all three inhabited worlds. But what else could he do? He broadcast his messages from his office in Aguirre City, demonstrating that he had not abandoned his people, even though he surely could. A show of solidarity. Not much, but something. Around him, the rest of his staff coordinated their own attempts to assist in whatever way they could. General Borta worked with his meager security fleet to both keep order and ferry people off-planet. With the help of Counselor Don... They had organized a number of the huge crop freighters currently in transit to act as relay points, ordering them to dump their cargo and clear all space for incoming refugees. Each could hold tens of thousands of people. Not comfortably, of course, but this was not a situation where comfort mattered. Smaller ships were ferrying Hetzalians up to the cargo vessels, offloading their people, then rushing back to pick up more. It was an imperfect system, but it was what they had been able to arrange on no notice. There was no plan for something like this. Minister Eka blamed himself for that. But how could he have known? This wasn't supposed to happen. It was impossible, whatever it was. He was just a farmer, after all, and... No, he thought, suddenly ashamed of himself. He was Minister Zephyrin Eka, leader of the whole blasted system. It didn't matter if he couldn't have anticipated this disaster. It was happening, and he needed to do everything he could. As he considered that thought, he looked over at Kaven Tar, who had never stopped running his little network, trying to keep information flowing. The young man was now working with three separate data pads and a number of palm droids projecting various displays on the walls, pulling in as much data as he could about the scope of the disaster that continued to wreak havoc in the system. He still had no real answers, other than to continually confirm that Hetzal was being savaged by whatever was afflicting the system. Satellites, arrays, stations, smashed apart by the storm of death that had come calling. It was like the seasonal two-fly swarms that used to plague the fruited moon, until they had been genetically modified out of existence. If the swarm came, there was nothing you could do. You hunkered down, survived, and sowed your fields again once it was all done. Echo watched as Kaven Tar wiped sweat from his eyes, then looked back at his main datapad, the one he had propped up on the little side table he was using as a desk. Tar's eyes widened, and his fingers froze, hovering over the screen. Minister? He said. I'm... I'm getting a signal. What signal? Eka said. I'll just... I'll just put it through, Tar said. And there was an odd note in his voice. A surprise, or just something unexpected. Words crackled into the air. One of the technicians comms droids, broadcasting the message out into Minister Eka's office. A woman's voice. Just a few words, but they brought with them. Yes, the one thing most needed at that moment. This is Jedi Master Avar Chris. Help is on the way. That one thing. Hope. Republic Emissary-class cruiser, Third Horizon. Ninety minutes to impact. A vessel appeared in the Hetzal system, leaping out of hyperspace and rapidly slowing as it returned to conventional speeds. It was deeply sunward, and the gravity wells it needed to navigate would rip a lesser ship apart. Or even this one, if its bridge crew did not represent the best the Republic had to offer. The ship was the Third Horizon, and it was beautiful. The ship's surfaces rippled along its frame like waves on a silver sea, tapering to a point with towers and crenellations along its length, like a fortress laid on its side, all wings and spires and spirals. It spoke of ambition. It spoke of optimism. It spoke of a thing made beautiful because it could be, with little consideration given to cost or effort. The Third Horizon was a work of art, symbolic of the great republic of worlds it represented. Smaller vessels began rolling off berths on the ship's hull, peeling away like flower petals in a breeze, darting specks of silver and gold. These were the craft of the Jedi Order, their vectors. As the Jedi and Republic worked as one, so did the great ship and its Jedi contingent. Larger ships exited the Third Horizons hangars as well. The Republic's workhorses, long beams, versatile vessels, each able to perform duties in combat, search-and-rescue, transport, and anything else their crews might require. The Vectors were configured as single or dual passenger craft, for not all Jedi traveled alone. Some brought their Padawans with them, so they might learn what lessons their masters had to teach. The long beams could be flown by as few as three crew, but could comfortably carry up to 24. Soldiers, diplomats, medics, techs, whatever was needed. The smaller vessels spun out into the system, accelerating away from the Third Horizon with purpose. Each with a destination, each with a goal, each with lives to save. On the bridge of the Third Horizon, a woman, human, stood alone. Activity churned all around her, in the arched spaces and alcoves of the bridge. ...as officers and navigators and specialists began to coordinate the effort to save the Hetzal system from destruction. The woman's name? Avar Criss. And for most of her three decades or so, a member of the Jedi Order. As a child, she came to the Great Temple on Coruscant. That school and embassy and monastery and reminder of the Force connecting every living thing. She was a youngling first, and as her studies advanced, a Padawan. Then a Jedi Knight, and finally, a Master. This operation was hers. An Admiral named Cronara was in command of the Third Horizon, itself part of the small peacekeeping fleet maintained by the Republic Defense Coalition but he had ceded control of the effort to save Hetzal to the Jedi. There was no conflict or discussion about the decision. The Republic had its strengths, and the Jedi had theirs, and each used them to support and benefit the other. Avar Chris studied the Hetzal system, projected on the flat silver display wall in the bridge by a purpose-built comms droid hovering before it. The images were a composite gathered from in-system sources, as well as the Third Horizon sensors. In green, the worlds, ships, space stations, and satellites of Hetzel. Her own assets, the vectors, long beams, and the Third Horizon itself, were blue. The bits of hot death moving through the system at incredible speed, source and nature as yet unknown, were red. As she watched, new scarlet motes appeared on the display. Whatever was happening here, it was not yet over. The Jedi reached to her shoulder, where a long white cape was secured by a golden buckle made in the shape of her Order's symbol. A living sunrise. This was ceremonial clothing. Appropriate for the joint Jedi Republic Conclave, the Third Horizon had attended at the just-now-completed galaxy-changing space station called Starlight Beacon. Now, though, considering the task at hand, the ornamental garments were a distraction. Avar tapped the buckle, and the cape released. It slipped to the ground in a puddle of fabric, revealing a simpler white tunic beneath, ornamented in gold. At her hip, in a white sheath, a metal cylinder. A single piece of sleek silver-white electrum, like the handle of a tool without the tool itself. Along its length, a spiraling, incised line of bright green sea stone, serving as both grip and ornament, running up to a cross guard at one end. A weapon with which she was skilled, but she would not need it today. The Jedi's lightsabers would not save Hetzel. It would be the Jedi themselves. Avar sank to the ground, settling herself, legs crossed. Her shoulder-length yellow hair, seemingly on its own, moved back and away from her face. It folded itself into a complex knot, a mandala, the creation of which was itself an aid to focus. She closed her eyes. The Jedi Master slowed her breathing, reaching out to the Force that surrounded her, suffused her. Slowly, she rose, ceasing once she floated a meter above the deck. Around the bridge, the crew of the Third Horizon took notice. They nodded, or smiled faintly, or simply felt hope bloom before returning to their urgent tasks. Avar Chris did not notice. There was only the force, and what it told her, and what she must do. She began.
0: Wow, wow, wow. That was a mind boggling first part of *The Light of the Jedi. Seriously, wasn't that just a wild ride through hyperspace? Now let's pause for a quick second. That opening section, absolutely bonkers. It opens with the disaster of the Legacy run, a large ship breaking apart in hyperspace, causing debris to threaten several worlds. This sets the stage for the series of events involving the Jedi, Republic officials, and the impact on the galaxy. Now brace yourself, because it's time for the quote of this episode, and this shining pearl of wisdom comes to us from none other than Pele. He said, success isn't determined by how many times you win, but by how you play the week after you lose. Alright, let's break this quote down. Imagine this, you're playing a game, maybe a sports or a video game, and you lose. It feels bad, right? But this quote says that success isn't about how many times you win the game, instead it's about how you do after you lose. So let's say you lost a game on Monday. The real test of success is what you do from Tuesday to the next Monday. Do you give up? Do you get angry and blame others? Or do you get back up and practice more, learn from your mistakes, and try to do better the next time? That's what this quote is talking about. Being successful means you don't let the loss beat you down. Instead, you use it as a lesson, a chance to grow and get better. It's about not giving up when things get tough. In real life, this can be used in many ways. Like if you're at your job and you make a mistake. Instead of feeling like a failure, you can think, what can I learn from this? How can I do better next time? Or if you're learning something new and it's hard, instead of quitting, you keep trying and practicing. It's all about not letting the tough times stop you. It's about learning, growing, and not giving up. That's what it really takes for someone to be successful. It's not just about winning. It's about how you handle the challenges and keep moving forward. And that's a wrap for this episode, folks. Hope you love diving into part one of Light of the Jedi with me. Can't wait to have you on board for part two, coming your way in just a few days. Until then, may the Force be with you. (laughs) Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by SwayCast Networks. The High Republic Light of the Jedi was read to you by Jason O'Dega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host Kyle and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.